Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Compact Nation podcast. This is Emily Shields, Executive Director at Iowa Campus Compact. We're going to start our introductions with our new segment that I'm calling, Where is Andrew? So, Andrew, can you introduce yourself and say where it is that you are? So, hello, everyone. I'm Andrew Seligson, <laughs> president of Campus Compact. And I appreciate that question because I often have to ask it of myself. Where is Andrew? Uh, <laughs> and right now I am in Miami, Florida. It's, uh, as you'd expect it to be, blue skies, sunny, lovely. Uh, and I'm here for the Ashoka U Exchange. So for those who aren't familiar, Ashoka U is the higher education-focused uh, component of Ashoka, the social innovation organization. And the exchange is uh, kind of a big gathering of what they call their changemaker campuses, so campuses that have kind of made social innovation a big part of what they do. I think Ashoka U does terrific work. Uh, we are great friends and partners of theirs, and I'm on a panel tomorrow about the strengths and limitations of social innovation as an approach and kind of what else needs to be in the mix. So I'll be talking about sort of democratic and civic skills and, and attention to government institutions and those kinds of things as, as part of the story. But very, very excited to be down here. Very cool. JR, I think we know where you are. I am in Indiana looking <laughs> outside at a gray sky and some fast winds blowing through the bushes. We have some tornado warnings. But despite all of that, it's a lovely day. Perfect. So I, and we didn't talk about this, but I wanted to start today by just telling our, our Compact Nation listeners um, a little advocacy strategy for the week. So we don't normally talk about action items for advocacy, but um, we in the Compact Nation have been very involved with the Corporation for National and Community Service with programs in that area, and that's been proposed for potential elimination in the new administration. And so just a quick plug, if you if you would, to just contact your member of Congress about that. Let them know if that's if those are programs you care about. And they're certainly ones that are near and dear to our hearts. Right, guys? That is absolutely right. And I'm an AmeriCorps alum, so go AmeriCorps. Yeah, me too. Me too. Yeah, and I, I you know, my one sort of substantive thought on that is at this moment in our history, opportunities for Americans to come together as Americans to do good work. I feel like we need more of those and not fewer of them. Absolutely. You're here. Great, great point. Um, so any other uh, thoughts that we want to start with? Anything else you guys want to cover before we talk about our interviewee for the episode? Can I just, this is in, this is in the category um, where Andrew was rather than oh, where perfect. Andrew so I spent last week, um, I'm, I'm not generating a lot of sympathy here. I was out in the Bay Area last week and uh, two really great events. So with California Campus Compact and the Presidio Institute, we had this event that was a, a dialogue about really whether higher education is living up to its obligations in supporting healthy, sustainable, just communities. So that was a really great and event at a beautiful venue. And then um, I was at the Research University Civic Engagement Network annual meeting. That's a group that Campus Compact uh, provides administrative backbone for, and it's leaders at what it sounds like, the un research universities who are really engaged in this work. Uh, and it was a, just a terrific conversation and um, just kind of reminded about all of the different components of the higher education ecosystem and the way 
they play different roles. You know, that our community colleges are so crucial, more than half our students in community colleges, that research universities have this kind of big tent quality and so much going on and just, just the way that many different sectors kind of contribute to the strength of higher education and the engagement work we support. That's fantastic. It kind of reminds me, I, there was an event in Des Moines last week that was on the future of higher education and it was a, it was a business audience. It was a business publication that put it together. And so I went and was frankly surprised at how much of the conversation was really about the civic mission, uh, about equity and inclusion in higher education, about how do we, you know, educate people who can be more active in their communities and more active in our democracy. For a business audience, so much of so many of the questions really came back to those topics, which I think kind of speaks to what you were talking about. You know, are we living up to that mission? Yeah, I think it's interesting that, um, you know, just the point you make that many business people, I think, are keenly aware of, first of all, the fact that they need a well-educated workforce, uh, but also the fact that people who they want to work for them are attracted to communities that are thriving and Mm -hmm. that, you know, higher education plays an important role in helping to make that happen. Yeah. And JR, I know you're coming off a big event in Indiana. I am. Well, first I was going to say, if Andrew needs a travel companion for any of these events, I don't even have to go to the meetings with you. I will be fine just tagging along, um, you know, organizing your clothes and whatever you need done, your notes. (laughs) Just let me know. I I like that JR has just volunteered to be my valet. Yes. (laughs) That that is true. I I will definitely do that. Just just let me know. You know my number. (laughs) So I am coming off of our two-day annual conference here in Indiana that we call the Service Engagement Summit. And our theme this year was social justice through the lens of race, class, and privilege and what that means uh, through the lens in which we view the world. And our keynote speakers were Kimberly Dark uh, from University of California, San Marcos. And we also had Ashley C. Ford, who is a past uh, guest here on the Compact Nation. And it was a great day of about 300 folks who came out from around the state. We had some folks from Michigan and Ohio come over as well. And it was a great celebration of the work that we do in the Compact, but really focusing in on that social justice lens of our work and how it all connects together, which is a nice tie-in to the interview we did this month. So I had the opportunity to sit down with Tania Mitchell, who is an assistant professor of organizational leadership policy and development at the University of Minnesota. And Tania is well known for her definition of critical service learning. And much of our conversation focused on the role of social justice in higher education and the language around that. So coming off of our event this week, uh, after sitting down with Tania last week, it's all starting to just swirl in my head about, about these definitions and what this all means. I'm with Dr. Tania Mitchell, Assistant Professor of Higher Education in the Department of Organizational Leadership, Policy, and Development at the University of Minnesota and the College of Education and Human Development. Tania is an internationally recognized scholar in service learning and community engagement, and she was recognized with the Early Career Research Award from the International Association for Research on Service Learning and Community Engagement, and she is the American, received an American Fellowship from the American Association of University Women. Tania is well known for helping to shape what we now know as critical service learning. 
Tania is also a rock star, and we are happy to have her here today on the Compact Nation podcast. Welcome, Tania. Thank you, JR. <laughs> a rock star, huh? <laughs> you are a rock star. Anytime I mention your name to any of my colleagues, uh, people are almost just, they're praising you <laughs> in many ways. You are a god in some ways to the work that we do uh, oh. in community engagement and higher education. And your name comes up, up at almost every conference or workshop that I attend uh, as well. So you, Thank you. you and I are going to get into some deep conversation today, but before we do that, I want to talk about your new book from Cambridge University Press. Can you mm-hmm. tell our listeners a little more about this? Yeah, we are really excited about the release of the Cambridge Handbook of Service Learning and Community Engagement. Um, my co-editors are Corey Dolgan from Stonehill College and Tim Eatman, um, current director of Imagining America. He's also got some fancy new title um, at Rutgers, uh, where he is now. Um, And we worked together on putting together this collection of 41 chapters that we really think of as um, positioning the foundations as well as the future of service learning and community engagement. What we wanted to do with the book was really to provide um, a nice foundation and framework for what service learning and community engagement has been for the last 30 years. Um, and even before that, in many ways, we we um, have in a few of the chapters, particularly in the first part of the book, tried to go beyond back to settlement house movements, um, back to historically black colleges and universities, um, back to labor, um, labor schools and uh, some of those works to really help us think about really what are the foundations of community engaged practice that have really been how that we have really benefited from um, in our work now. But then also to sort of look at the future, we have uh, the last section of the book is called Critical Voices. And we really aim to highlight some of the things where our practice hasn't always lived up to to its promise um, and what we can do to better position ourselves in the future to um, bring about the change that that we say that we desire through the work that we do. Um, and sort of in the middle, <laughs> mm-hmm. we, we take a good look at best practices um, in the work, and we've really tried to bring in um, a lot of alternative models of best practices. So we look at University Without Borders, for example, um, as one way of partnering with uh, community agencies and um, providing some different ways of thinking about uh, social justice education and service learning and community engagement as models of that. We um, are looking at reflective practice and have a really lovely chapter from Kristen Norris um, and colleagues about uh, digital uh, reflect digital stories as um, reflective practice. She's going to get mad at me because I said that totally wrong, but <laughs> um, but she knows what I'm talking about. Yes, she does. <laughs> and uh, but also thinking about. Um, uh, we have uh, Pam Motrike from uh, Cal State Monterey Bay, who is writing about um, the foundations of multicultural community building, which has been so core to the way that they have um, done service learning and community engagement at that institution. Um, we, in the third section of the book, we really focus on disciplinary approaches. And so targeting voices from um, 
English departments. Uh, we look at professional schools. Um, we look at ethnic studies. Kathleen Yap has done um, a great chapter with me on um, decolonizing community engagement that we're really excited about. Uh, we also move in the fourth section into thinking about professional associations and the roles of organizations and units like Campus Compact in shaping the field, which I think is something that a lot of handbooks on service learning and community engagement tend to avoid is the role of um, administrative support. Uh, Lena Cecilia does a chapter on that, um, as well as the role of organizations and associations that convene and coordinate and support the work of colleges and universities in doing community engagement and strengthening our practice. Um, so that section also includes uh, a chapter from Jeff Howard about the Michigan Journal and its history and its influence that we think is really important in thinking about our field overall. Um, it's a really heavy book. <laughs> <laughs> I think it comes in at like five pounds. Wow. Um, yeah. And it's also really expensive. So, um, but worth should, every dollar, right? It, worth every penny, but people should also like depend on their university libraries as well as um, departments and centers who have a little bit of a budget <laughs> yes. to to um, to secure the book for them. But we think it will be an important um, contribution to the field and a really great resource um, that we hope will will stand the test of time, honestly. It sounds robust. It looks at the past, it looks at where we are, and it looks at the future, and I think that's really important. As one of yeah. the editors of that book, and being at a 30,000-foot level looking down, um, mm -hmm. also as somebody who dug into this and, mm -hmm. and really put this all together, pieced it mm -hmm. together, what did the foundations in our past tell us about where we're headed as a future, in the future? Hmm. It's a good question. Um, well, I think, I think one of the things that, that the foundation's pieces have really, have really been important to remind us is, um, that we could pay more attention to our history and sort of the, um, as ebbs and flows, the right words, uh, the, the ways that we have, we are, our, our practice has been what I would consider to be very progressive and then has kind of flowed back into um, a more institutionalized, acceptable practice, so to speak. Like, like there's been this move between what would be considered kind of a radical positioning um, of community engaged work. And, uh, you know, I think Nadine Cruz has, uh, we have, we have a series of, um, of stories from, from, the folks that we, I think we would consider uh, pioneers in the field, and Nadine Cruz and Liz Hollander are both featured in the in the book, um, which was really important and special for us to have those moments. And I, I remember Nadine's piece. She talks about, um, you know, that that higher education felt like a place where she could do uh, the radical politics that that you know she was kind of using higher education as a space to do radical politics and there's a way that we have, we have definitely kind of come, I guess, regressed from that positioning of our work um, into something that can be widely acceptable and widely reached and, and in many ways depoliticized um, while coming up against a challenge of, um, you know, I think what, what we want to position as 
work that really does have a social change mindset and framework um, in terms of thinking about the opportunities that things like the settlement houses provided in terms of creating, you know, more stable foundation and grounding for people to really build their lives on. Um, and I think we want, we want to do that kind of change making work in the world. Um, and we're still kind of, kind of trying to make our way mm -hmm. in that space. And so, so I think there is something, I think it, I think what was really powerful for me in, in reading the foundations pieces in particular was the recognition of how relevant this history is to what we are trying to do now. Um, and thinking about, you know, it, what, what would be different if we had continued to build on those traditions as opposed to um, turning from them and trying to sort of reinvent the wheel um, in new ways, you know, cause we don't often look at the, we don't often look at these sort of um, you know, the labor schools, we don't often look at uh, settlement houses. We don't often look at um, the community engaged work that historically black colleges and universities were doing from their founding as as foundational to our practice today. Mm -hmm. And I think if we spent a little bit more time exploring that then, um, or, and if we had been continuous in our exploration of that, as we had built as a field that our practice might look really different than it does right now. Mm -hmm. Are there convenient bridges between those two that are being built currently or could be built to make that connection a little more clear? convenient bridges hmm. yeah yeah that's another way to say low-hanging fruit <laughs> <laughs> i'm i'm trademarking that no uh -huh. i'm kidding <laughs> um i i don't know i i i would have to i guess i would i would have to really have those conversations i think with the authors of those chapters yeah to see if if that really feels um true for them in, uh, in the, in the space in these moments, I don't necessarily, I, I don't, I don't know that I am seeing any convenient bridges. Uh -huh. Um, I guess I would like to, to figure out how to build them. Um, uh -huh. one thing that I will say that is pretty interesting that kind of happened, that happened here, that's happening here at the university of Minnesota is that we have a, an ongoing series on decolonizing community engagement that where they have brought together um, a, a series of First Nations and indigenous scholars who are talking about community engaged practice. And when um, Kathy Yep and I were writing our chapter about service learning and ethnic studies, we titled it Decolonizing Community Engagement, but that isn't really widely known because the book just came out last month. <laughs> um, and so I just, I thought that was a happy coincidence. Um, uh -huh. But it's really, um, but I, I wonder, particularly in this moment, you know, we, we saw yesterday the, um, the last stands of, of the Dakota Access Pipeline encampment and mm. um, thinking about just the, the place and opportunity to learn from uh, First Nations and Indigenous folk about what community engagement can look like and can be um, in those spaces. I think that that might be maybe that would be the most convenient bridge that I, I'm seeing today. Yeah, I think that is really important. The other thing as you were talking, I was reminded of a conversation I had with Tim Eatman about blind spots and mm. uh, how we are so blind in many ways still in this 
field um, about learning from those voices, even though it's built so much into or should be built so much into what we do. And so, mm -hmm. so do you think part of that is overcoming our blind spots? Yeah, I, um, I do think part of that is overcoming our blind spots. I think there is, um, I think that even, even new fields find themselves, um, find themselves, uh, hanging on to old, old ways and, um, common practices. And so, so one of the ways that we legitimize ourselves as a field is that we host conferences and we develop, um, journals and we write papers and books and, and I fall into that just as, as much as, as other people. And I wonder if we, um, did more work around creating conversations and listening circles and, um, bringing non-academic forces to the table. Um, you know, if, if those are the blind spots that we need to be paying more attention to. Mm -hmm. And some of that can happen, I think, through critical service learning, which is a definition or an approach that you have helped define mm -hmm. in many ways. Mm -hmm. And critical service learning, for those who are listening and may think, what is that exactly? It's a, it's a pedagogy that links service learning and social justice education by engaging students in meaningful service in their communities and then integrating that experience with thoughtful introduction, analysis, and discussion of important issues around social justice. Mm -hmm. Critical service learning in many ways could be um, that connection point to help with blind spots, but there also there could be challenges with that depending on the students' backgrounds and, and where they where they come from. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit more what you think critical service learning looks like in today's landscape? Yeah. Well, so so the three when I was working on trying to operationalize a critical service learning pedagogy, I came up with three key aspects of the work that I think differentiate it from what we end up calling, you know, traditional service learning. And the first is attention to social change. The second is working to redistribute power. And the third is developing authentic relationships. And so this this piece around bringing attention to social change becomes really important in making sure that we are tending to root causes of social problems and social concerns. And especially, I think, in um, in thinking about the ways that we engage in community work, you know, we um, we end up, I think, by default, oftentimes doing a lot of work in community that doesn't necessarily aim for social change, much less work for it, right? Um, and so, so thinking about the limitations and the shortcomings of even the ways that we approach community work and um, beginning to vision some alternatives for that practice feels important to me in, in a social change orientation. Um, Working to redistribute power has been probably for in my own practice just the the most difficult one to enact, um, in part because I do most of this work from the space of higher education and mm -hmm. uh, the limitations of of you know the academic calendar, um, you know of of funding of of student schedules of all of those things make it really really difficult to to imagine. Um, and enact possibilities for the redistribution of power. But I think that, um, you know, bringing community community members into the classroom um, and compensating them for that work, recognizing their role 
in teaching um, by sharing syllabi and getting input and feedback from them in advance are all opportunities and possibilities for um, for redistributing power um, and then developing authentic relationships. I think I am focusing in particular now a lot on identity and social location and also on um, building solidarity in, in really thinking about it, what it means to to develop an authentic relationship. So understanding who I am and my relationship to this social concern or social issue um, and what I can do in my sphere of influence um, to affect change on that, how I recognize uh, and change my behavior so that I am a part of the solution um, and not just someone who colludes with the, with the problem or the concern mm-hmm. um, has all been important in those efforts. So when you think about the administrative side of the puzzle and then you mm-hmm. think about the students, um, how do those two connect around critical service learning? Uh, do you find that admins are a little more cautious than the students or vice versa? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, it honestly it depends on the institution. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes even within the institution, you'll, you'll get different answers to that question. Um, I think the other piece of the administration versus a student is also our community partners um, themselves, right? And the challenges that they are up against um, in, you know, maintaining and sustaining nonprofit organizations and what what they can get funded for, um, the type of work that they can do in those spaces and and the limitations of that work. So in my in my own thinking about the best possibilities for enacting a critical service learning pedagogy, I've been focusing a lot on project-based work. Um, and, you know, project-based work is, it looks very different than your traditional placement model of community engagement. It, it isn't dependent on someone showing up to a site for X number of hours um, in a given week or given month or given semester or quarter. And it's usually, it usually requires a lot of different tasks, not one uniform task that you repeat over and over again, which means that it requires a different level of engagement in terms of supervision, um, both on the part of the faculty member and the community partner. And, and so, and so it ends up being a much more complicated practice and that where, where it has been difficult as I've heard from my friends and colleagues who are service learning administrators, but also from faculty who, who want to do more critically engaged work is that sometimes we we struggle with community partners who don't have time, effort, or energy to, to, to help us figure out what a project might look like when they have these really great, you know, 25 tutoring positions mm-hmm. <laughs> ready to be filled, you know? And so, um, and so, so there, there are a number of ways that the, that the, the project orientation that I imagine best serves a critical service learning pedagogy doesn't best serve our community partners. Mm-hmm. And so wrestling with that, with that part is hard. Um, you know, I think that there are, I think there are, are definitely um, service learning and community engagement administrators that I have um, met and who I adore who come to this work with social justice as their primary is a primary motivator, right? Like mm-hmm. I, I got into this work because I want, I want to change the world. I want to make it better. And this feels like a really great opportunity to leverage 
the resources in terms of the energy and passion of college students, but also, you know, the dollars and, and commitments of, of a name like a big university um, to do good work in the community. And that is incredibly inspiring and motivating. Um, and, and I think they want students to be as excited about that as they are. And you have some students who come in who are really interested in that transactional relationship of community service that they can put on their resume that's going to help them get into occupational therapy school or, <laughs> or whatever else, you know, their, their, current, um, their current aim is um, in terms of their, their future of engagement. And, you know, and so, so that desire to want to push students towards thinking more critically about the reasons why they engage in community, um, I think is, is important in the work of a number of community engagement colleagues that I, that I have and that I, I get to work with. Um, and then I also have definitely come across a whole host of students, uh, students who even challenge me in, um, in my experiences as, as educators who, who want to be, who want to get credit for their activism, mm -hmm. who want people to recognize the ways that their work in advocating for, um, you know, or advocating against police violence, of advocating for more inclusive spaces on our campus, in our community, um, of of their their work, you know, to take over the president's office and and to bring attention to the issues of injustice that they're facing on a on a daily basis is an exercise of civic engagement that they want recognized. And um, our field has not fully embraced those efforts yet. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, they, um, you know, I think, I think that, that we, um, I think that there are, I think that there are students who would like to see, would like to have their, their work for social justice recognized. Um, and that, both as civic engagement professionals, but also higher education institutions, mm -hmm. we have not yet done the job of, of honoring um, when they when they work with their feet in the ways that they are, because it doesn't look like, mm -hmm. you know, service it's not, learning. It's not, it's not structured. <laughs> We're so yeah, used to our yeah. structure. Nobody, right? nobody, um, nobody had to fill out a time log. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there was no reflective journal. Yeah. <laughs> and, and how do you grade that too? You know, mm -hmm. um, but I agree with you. I think, and or I agree with the students too. You know, I think they should be recognized for that work in some way, but mm -hmm. we have a ton of work on our end to figure out what that looks like and then to advocate right. for those type of changes. How do you navigate conflicts with students who are, say, in a critical service learning course mm -hmm. and there's more um, not as concrete structured work that's happening mm -hmm. and they they don't want to 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 do that? How do mm -hmm. you how do you navigate those conflicts when they mm -hmm. arise? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um... So, so just to make sure I'm understanding your question, you're saying like if if there is a more um, advocacy oriented work for a student to do and they're not interested mm -hmm. in that work, how do I navigate those issues? Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, I I'm thinking about two thinking about two examples. Um, one where I don't think I handled it very well, and one where I think I did a much better job. And um, very early in my career, I was teaching. Um, 
and basically an introduction to women's studies course is the best way that I would describe it. Um, that had a service learning component and I had partnered with a whole host of, of organizations that served the needs, um, of girls and women. And so it was like the YWCA, which, um, in this community, uh, also ran the, the town's domestic violence shelter, um, Monterey Crisis Center was another place. Um, we worked with the Boys and Girls Club and with the Girl Scouts of America, and then also Planned Parenthood. And I thought that that was a range of options and opportunities that would serve all of the students in my class. And I had a student who really wanted to work with a crisis pregnancy center. And I think my own politics um, and my own hesitation about developing a new partnership in the space where I have already organized all of these other partnerships, you know, <laughs> where I'd made those connections and, um, and made those commitments to those partners that they would be served through this class. Um, I, I was really reluctant to allow the student to explore um, this option for themselves and and essentially um, I, forced is, feels like too harsh of a word, um, but you know I was sort of like here are the here are the placements. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let me encourage you to pick one of these if you want to if you want to stay in the class. Um, and you know and I felt like I felt pretty clear that if for the student if if Planned Parenthood was was the concern you know this idea of of a crisis pregnancy center versus Planned Parenthood. Um, in in terms of the in terms of the students' own interest in wanting to bring in a new perspective and conversation around the issues that were probably or likely to be explored in the Planned Parenthood placement, I was sort of like, here are a whole bunch of other things that I'm sure would fit your politics um, and your experiences and your desires to be in this space without asking you to work at Planned Parenthood. And I think that what I didn't do in that moment or that opportunity was to get a better um, it was to listen better mm-hmm. to the student and what they were hoping to gain from this experience and to recognize what opportunities um, their work in this other type of space um, might have allowed them to bring into the classroom and what opportunities might have existed because they were doing this other kind of work for um, other students uh critical perspectives to be even strengthened, right? Not necessarily challenged, but perhaps even strengthened in their convictions and their commitments to different issues. And I think that um, that I was too quick to tamp down mm-hmm. um, as opposed to thinking about possibilities and opportunities. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, I struggle with that because there's still, there's still, look, there's still, there's still work that I am not interested in connecting to my teaching. Uh-huh. You know, um, and so so I, I remember a conversation. This was so many years ago. It was hilarious um, to me. But we were having we were having a really serious conversation in a staff meeting about whether or not, um, you know, if, if our if our vision and our aim as an as a as a as a community engagement center was social justice, then does it make sense for us to work with this partner or this partner or this partner? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, bringing up other policies and, and aspects of their work that 
could be deemed as exclusive um, or not even deemed as those were straight up like blatantly exclusive <laughs> right. in, in terms of their in terms of their practice. And so what does it mean for us to say that we want to work for social justice and yet we will partner with X, Y or Z organization? Mm-hmm. And um, and I remember so vividly uh, one of the women around the table was like, well, let's think about this. If the KKK had an after school program, would we let our students tutor there? And and the 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 um, the absurdity of that question, um, uh, like both made made us gasp and also and also laugh. Uh Um, And, you know, and and it it sticks with me as as this example, because because there there is just there there are people that I am not willing to partner with Mm -hmm. in my teaching. And I think that I think that one of the one of the privileges of being a faculty member is being someone that organizes in that space is for me to be able to say, yep, not you. you know? mm-hmm. yeah. um, and, and, you know, I, I think simultaneously I have to also um, balance what that means in terms of um, what students um, and, you know, the KKK is far too extreme an okay. example in this matter, but you know, what students then are feel like they can come to me, how, how open they see me as someone who's going to support them in their academic journey and their civic identity journeys. Um, and what, what am I willing to lose, um, by being so firm in my expectations for what good community engaged work looks like. Mm -hmm. So I wrestle with that. Um, simultaneously, you know, I think, uh, the class that, we developed at Stanford with my with my good friend Kathy Cole um, on grassroots social movements has been probably the closest model of uh, critical service learning that I've been able to develop. And the way that we worked with um, students who who weren't necessarily as interested in p- playing an advocacy role um, was one that ended up much much easier to navigate than I thought it had been. You know, the class itself was uh, really organized with the intention of supporting the work of the California Domestic Workers Alliance in passing a Domestic Worker Bill of Rights for the state of California. And so with that as our goal, front and center, um, from the beginning, you would imagine that a lot of our work would be advocacy oriented. Mm -hmm. And there certainly were, um, there certainly were, opportunities for students to be advocates um, through that work. You know, we, we, you know, rented buses and, and took students to the state capitol and had them, you know, march on on Sacramento um, in support of this legislation. We had students who testified, um, you know, and, and lobbied their legislators to talk about their experiences as children of domestic workers or domestic workers themselves or people who have benefited from the work of domestic workers and advocating for this legislation. So there were definitely like advocacy roles that were a significant part of, of this project, Mm -hmm. but there were also some really mundane day-to-day activities that just created the space and opportunity for the domestic workers who were trying to push forward this grassroots movement to do their jobs, right. To Mm -hmm. do, um, to do the work of, of, of pushing forward, of building this movement to push forward this legislation. And so things like babysitting 
right? Um, you know, like sitting down and coloring with children um, were were activities that needed to happen because mm-hmm. they created space, created space and freedom for for them to do that work. You know, we we picked up meals, we cooked meals, we we did, uh, you know, we we cleaned up spaces. We did a lot of um, we did a lot of much less political work than you would might than you might imagine um that ended up being of tremendous service to the uh to the domestic workers we we researched legislators um and learned more about them in order to be able to share with our domestic worker colleagues more information about the legislators that they were going to be lobbying in their own efforts to to pass the legislation and so so we felt like there were a lot of different places for students to enter, regardless of their political leanings um, towards this particular issue. Mm-hmm. And what we did in that course was rather than counting hours, rather than being focused on like the transactional nature of service, we really asked people to articulate their relationship to the work and to the issue. And to really be able to speak to how whatever it was that they did as part of their service for this class um, was connected to the passage of the Domestic Worker Bill of Rights. And so the student who would who would do child care could talk about the ways that their time spent with young people, um, you know, playing games or coloring or whatever it was, um, you know, created this hour of space or, or um, time for that child's mother or father um, or other uh, or other relationship to to be able to do the work of, you know, calling, door knocking, whatever else it was that they freed them up for that for that moment. And therefore, you know, this much more was able to be done in, in passage of the Domestic Worker Bill of Rights. And so it was really about, you know, when I talked about developing authentic relationships, right, being able to position yourself in the space of this movement and understand how what you were doing works in service or works against it. And um, we asked students to to really articulate their relationship to the issue through their work on the campaign in whatever way that work happened. Um, and that was where that was where we focused our energy as opposed to you need to do this kind of work mm-hmm. in order to participate in this type of class. Mm-hmm. When you think about the role of social justice in our society and faculty and community engagement practitioners and professionals playing a pivotal role, what supports do you think still need to happen from university, college and university leadership? Hmm. <laughs> and that is not a loaded question, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> it may not be loaded, but it's a little. It, it, it's heavy. <laughs> um, you know, I think. I, I mean, like one of the things that I, I would love, I would love to to hear from more college and university presidents is, um, just even use of the word social justice. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I am, I am, I feel very, very aware of all of the pressures that senior leadership 
is up against in terms of the many constituents that they have to respond to, mm-hmm. um, you know, from alumni and current students and uh, legislatures on the part of primarily on the part of state institutions, but I'm sure that that even creeps into private institutions sometimes, you know, boards of trustees, other faculty, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's, there are a lot of people who, who are clamoring um, for the attention of, of the senior leaders. Um, and, and even, I think even to hear, even to hear that social justice was, um, was a, a, enough, a big enough value in, um, our institutions that, that our president would, would use the words, you know, say the words out loud in a non, in a non-disparaging way <laughs> would be a beautiful thing, um, that I think could go a long way for, um, for, uh, for faculty, um, in particular who wanted to pursue an engaged, um, an engaged scholarship agenda with aims towards social justice. I think that would, that would go a long way, but I think that there's a couple of fronts where this could be very valuable in terms of providing support, particularly to, to junior faculty and, and folks in, um, doctoral preparation programs now who would love to be faculty, you know, I think that providing role models who um, are doing engaged work and engaged work that seeks to create social change is that's important modeling that I think particularly um, junior faculty need to see. Um, I think that creating um Granting programs um, and connecting faculty to granting opportunities where um, where there there are funds available to do non traditional scholarship is really important. Um, I would love to see doctoral training programs provide more um, like I guess community based research, action research. Um, more methodology programs that are about engagement work. Um, those, those exist in far too few a number. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that the, there's, it is one thing to say. So for example, um, you know, the, if your tenure and promotion guidelines say something to the effect of, you know, public scholarship is, um, is valued Mm-hmm. <laughs> or can be considered that's a um that that is that can be enough of a that can be a helpful thing for sure in in a tenure and promotion case where you know someone can then feel comfortable that if they do publicly engaged work that matters but it's a whole other story if you can um if you have an example of a faculty member who has already built their case on public engagement who is willing to mentor and share um, how they did that, uh, it, it, it can, it can feel like a really risky proposition to know that you want to build your career on, um, an engaged practice with aims towards social justice and, um, and feel confident that you will, you won't be punished for that, um, that, that you will, you will still be able to have a successful career you know, be able to get tenure, be able to, um, to grow in an institution. Um, it, it's hard, it's hard to, to feel confident 
in in that reality without without role models who who can affirm that that is that is possible for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so that type of of leadership at the institution, I think, could be really, really helpful. Mm-hmm. Institutions I work with, we do mm-hmm. still hear from faculty who indicate they're advised not to do service learning or community engagement work. So we have a ton of road to still pave in front of us, mm-hmm. I think, as far mm-hmm. as as that goes. The exciting piece of it all is that we have built this amazing cohort across the country of people who are now moving into leadership positions who can make those changes and become advocates for those junior faculty who do not have voices in some ways. So I think... I think that's a positive. Yeah. No, it definitely is. It definitely is. So what are you looking forward to in the next year? What's this big thing on the horizon that you are just really excited for? <laughs> that's a great question. Um, so one thing is that I am um, up for tenure this year. Oh, yay. So, Congratulations. Thank you. So so one of the one of the things I am looking forward to is – um, sometime around May, I should get the notification of whether or not I have been tenured at the University of Minnesota. And so I am looking forward to finding out, especially if it's positive, <laughs> that that is the case. Um, I am really excited about uh, – I'm working on a book project right now with my colleague Krista Soria, and we are looking at um, – social justice practices um, in community engagement at research universities. And so we have a contract with Paul Grave McMillan to develop a new book on that end. And I think it is really exciting. Um, the chapters that we've collected from for this volume, I think, are really exciting in terms of the uh, ways that they are, they are talking about research universities as explicitly doing work about social justice and social change through their community engagement centers and offices. Um, and I think that is, I think that's really exciting. Um, what else am I excited about? IR Slice is going to be in Ireland. Yes. Across the pond. <laughs> we're going to, you know, we're actually, we're actually going to, going to leave North America. To, I know. And enact the I in, in international. Um, yes. That feels that feels really really exciting to me, um, and I am hopeful to join my colleagues across the pond um, and uh, and explore Ireland. I think that will be a tremendous opportunity for us. I agree. I'm really excited about yeah. that as well. Well, Dr. Tania Mitchell, thank you so much for joining us today on the Compact Nation podcast. Indeed, and we look forward to our continued conversations with you. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Jr. You're welcome. So welcome back, everyone. I hope you enjoyed our chat with Tania Mitchell. And I'd love to talk about some of our takeaways. I know for me, and again, as I mentioned in our earlier segment, coming off of our service engagement summit, which was focused around social justice, the conversation Tania and I had about social justice and that our field has not fully embraced that term or social justice activism as academic I found really interesting, and it also made me think about college university leaders, colleges and universities and the leadership and um, external forces that sometimes can shift and shape language that we may use. And so I walked away from our conversation thinking about 
is the term community engagement or the lens in which we view community engagement safe? Is it really a safe spot in which we operate and are we too scared to move toward social justice? So that is just kind of where I am left with uh, the conversation thinking about what that means for our work. For me, I think one of the, you know, I found a lot of things that, that Tania talked about interesting. And I, I thought in, in the context of, of the question you just posed, JR, the dilemma she just described of, of really thinking through how much should there be a kind of values orientation toward courses that a professor is designing and then how much flexibility for students to enact their own values in that setting and the fact that she really kind of, you know, has rethought some earlier practices of hers and, and thought that it might make sense to give students more opportunity for kind of letting their own values drive their, their decisions. And that made sense to me. I also thought, and this I think goes to the, the way I think about answering your question, I think it's good that we are a big enough tent to allow people to bring different value orientations and perspectives to community engagement work. I think that's one of the strengths of universities is that they are open spaces with, you know, the possibility of bringing a, a great variety of ideas to the table. So, for example, I had the opportunity last year to attend the national championships for Enactus, which is an organization that supports student chapters addressing poverty through essentially the free market. So using free market devices to help uh, communities develop economic strength. And, you know, they have a very specific orientation toward the values of liberty and economic freedom. And I also think they have a sincere interest in addressing poverty and its implications. And I think it's a good thing that our universe has room for folks whose lens is through social justice, for those who, you know, have an orientation toward mobilizing the free market for uh, public goods, et cetera. And I, I, so I think that's a good thing to allow that space. And I also think we should expect that different faculty members will therefore shape their work in different ways. And again, I, I think that's, that's a positive dimension of the work that we support. Yeah, I completely agree with that and actually have a good example of the Enactus and their work. One of our um, principal community scholars, which is a partnership we have with a major financial company in the Des Moines area. Um, she developed a sort of social entrepreneurship approach after there were floods in Cedar Rapids and in a different part of the state. They saw the the sandbags that had been used that were just going to go to waste. They, the sandbags get filled, they get emptied, and they get thrown away for the most part. So they decided to take those sandbags, turn them into handbags, and sell them and raise money for um, for some businesses and other organizations that were impacted by the floods and to help with the economic recovery from that event. And I thought that was such a cool example. And it also speaks to just kind of meeting people where they are, which is, in my opinion, how this usually works best, whether you're talking about faculty and what they want to incorporate in their scholarship or their teaching, whether you're talking about students, you know, you need to tap into what people are passionate about and the ways in which they want to go about it. And when we're working with students, that's why we often use Minnesota Campus Compact Social Change Wheel to talk about there's all these different ways. And if and if social justice and um, 
advocacy and different things like that aren't in your wheelhouse. Even Tania talked about having students like that who were then able to provide childcare mm. and things like that. So again, I think you're going to have people with uh, with charity orientations, with free market orientations, with um, with social justice orientations, and I think the best thing we can do is provide avenues for all of those to make a difference and um, and help students build skills. I did think it was interesting she talked about, you know, students' interest in social justice work wanting that in some ways to count. And to me, that speaks to wanting to be recognized for the skills that can be built through that work and the ways in which that work can be really integrated with learning and with applying knowledge, which, you know, might not always be the case. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think um, probably many of our listeners are familiar with the report that was released by an organization called the National Association of Scholars earlier this year that uh, was a sort of critique of what they call the new civics. Uh, and there was, um, you know, I, I think we, we haven't sort of set aside time to dig deeply into a 500-page report. I think it's, you know, it was a mischaracterization of the history of our movement, of its intention, uh, and of the actual practice in a, a million different ways that maybe at some point in the future we would talk about. But one of the things that struck me as just most misguided about it and kind of most clearly indicated that the people behind it actually had very little idea of the field they were talking about is precisely this, that in fact there's great diversity of practice in and around the work that we support and that we engage in. I mean, I'm thinking about this being down here at the Ashoka U Exchange. You know, these are folks who I think of as part of our movement and some of them are coming at this from, you know, being interested in social innovation and improving public policy making. Some are coming at it from a social entrepreneurship and thinking about how do you generate for-profit businesses that meet social and environmental concerns. You know, there's a lot of different approaches. And I think we've always been that kind of big tent. It doesn't mean there's no kind of values that we share about wanting to confront social problems and improve life for people. But that's not an ideological or a partisan set of positions. Uh, and again, I, th I think that's a strength of the work that we do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think kind of speaks to what you were saying earlier, JR, about about safety, you know, leaders and others in higher ed have the tricky pop proposition of finding the right way to talk to this, to the, talk about this that speaks to a lot of people. Because at the same time that some might think we're not focused on social justice enough or talking about that enough, organizations like this would attack that, mm -hmm. right, as trying to force students into liberal activism, which, you know, again... I th we've kind of talked about before, you just really can't do. I don't think anyone can advocate for something they don't believe. That's not going to be uh, effective in any way. Right. And I also think that certain words within our big tent, like social justice, can sometimes be painted in a negative way because people are not absolutely certain what that means. And so I just I get the feeling that social justice in some ways has become this naughty word that people are afraid to use. So to Tania's point, I can see how there could be fear built around that based on everything we've we've just discussed. But but it is one of the things uh, among many in our big tent. 
that yeah. helps students. Well, but I agree with you. It doesn't, the work that we do doesn't drive students in one direction or the other, but it helps them explore their options about where they want to best advocate. Mm-hmm. And what for and how. Um, but I also think, you know, within that, so many words in our current issue with discourse, mm-hmm. it just get twisted. And this, it, it's just among those, you know, where different meanings are given di- by different uh, people who have agendas behind assigning those meanings. And um, I think it makes our imperative for having real dialogue and discourse and getting people to really talk to each other about what they mean even more important. Mm-hmm. You know, I guess the the only other thing I'd say, maybe, maybe this is saying the same thing again, but I think the, um, you know, one of the things I just appreciated was kind of hearing Tania who is, you know, both a, you know, a scholar of these kinds of educational practices as well as a practitioner herself, hearing her kind of meditate and, you know, on her own practice and recognize that that somebody who has spent an enormous amount of time studying, developing, improving her own practice still, you know, confronts some basic dilemmas and is constantly struggling with those and working to try to uh, refine and, and advance the work further and make her practice more closely conformed to what she sees as the ideal, but also recognizing that some of the questions are just really difficult to resolve. I just, I liked that as um, a kind of experience of listening to a person in her, with, with her background, engage in that. And in some ways it just makes, you know, me feel better about the, my teaching mm-hmm. that I've done and how challenging all these things remain. And I, I hope that it's inspiring in that way for people that, that that's the nature of this kind of work, you know, that it's complex and the challenges are pretty much permanent. Yeah, that part of the chat with her reminded me that we're all human. It, it was really like this humanity piece for me. Uh, because I mentioned at the very beginning that Tania is a rock star to me and, and so many others. And so to hear her think about that and reflect upon that just reminded me that we are all human and in this together. And our opinions and thoughts and practices shift based on our experiences. And I was also taken by how uh, she had the experience with a student who wanted a different placement and how she had to really think about that. And at first she felt like she maybe didn't approach that in the right way. But through much reflection, she thought about what she would do differently in the future. And that helped expand Uh, the way that she approached her future practice. And so just hearing her think out loud about that, I also found very refreshing. Yeah, I think it just reminds us all that these things are, there are just complicated tensions within this work. It's messy. So there's not a handbook someone, even a rock star like Tania Mm -hmm. can hand you to tell you what to do in all these situations. It's something I think everybody has to work through on their own and come up with their own Um, approach to and lens for and it's just a good reminder of that so let's do some pop culture corner and jr i'm gonna start with you (laughs) yes so i'm currently reading a book called love where you live by peter kegayama and his book is all about falling in love where you live right in the title but also the importance of emotion and how emotion is tied to economic development how it's tied to placemaking and as i'm reading this book i continue to think about our work in compact nation uh, and, and particularly our work with students and helping them love where they live while they're in college 
and becoming engaged with those local communities and seeing the vibrancy in each of those communities, but also falling in love with their home, right? If, if, if they're not already in love with their hometown, but also in love with where they'll live in the future and really building citizens who are going to be the change makers in our communities. And so I'm making those connections as I'm reading Peter's book. He doesn't necessarily talk about it in that context, but that's where I'm, I'm headed as I'm reading Peter's book, Love Where You Live. Yeah, that's interesting. I think it resonates with me, you know, here in flyover country because I I see a lot of that. I see a lot, especially in Des Moines in recent years, people really wanting to embrace living here and really say that they chose it for a reason and do love it. You know, it's not necessarily controversial to love New York. There's millions of t-shirts declaring that fact and that kind of thing. But when you're from a place that's a little less... Um, sexy, if you will. <clears throat> Indiana. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Really saying like, nope, I love it here. And this is the choice I've, I've made. And I'm not settling for that. Um, you know, that's a that can be a bold statement at times. And I've seen more of that recently. And I love it. I do, too. I, I get made fun of by people who've known me for a long time. Uh, so I've lived in a bunch of places. I, I grew up in New York, Went to college in Western Mass, lived in Minneapolis, in Otsego County, New York, in Trenton, New Jersey, now in Boston. And essentially, when I live in a place, I will swear up and down that it is the best place to live on Earth. And some of these are places that it's not obvious to everybody in the universe that they're great places. But yeah, I found great things in all of them and always been excited to be there and uh, miss everyone in a different way. And I, 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 do I know for myself that my own engagement in communities and in practical work to help make them better was definitely driven by that feeling. And so I'm, I'm interested in reading the book because it, it just that resonated with me right away when you started talking about it, JR. Yeah, absolutely. So as is tradition with Pop Culture Corner, when JR goes high, we go low because for me, pop culture, I'm not you know, I do read books, everyone. I'll just have you know that. <laughs> Even though I haven't brought up very many of them. I'm trying to pick, you know, potentially uh, go in a different path. So I think what I wanted to talk about when Andrew wanted to talk about are similar in that the Oscars just happened. And they were something else. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, probably, you know, well, you'll be hearing this a little later, but uh, at least by the time this this episode is out there. Most people will have seen the um, mistake heard, heard around the world uh, with the Oscars Best Picture announcement. And that just was such a great moment for me because, um, you know, leading this organization and, and being in, in charge of a lot of things, I, I often beat myself up for small mistakes. Um, you know, just little dumb things where something is spelled wrong or the wrong word is used or, or things like that. And I just, you know, every time get so upset with myself for, for letting those small things happen and get, get in the way of the great work we're trying to do. But man, if the production of the Oscars can make a mistake like that, I'm just going to let myself off the hook forever and allow, <laughs> allow failure to happen and we'll all live with it and learn from it, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I had the same feeling. Having found myself in a role in life where, yeah, I'm responsible for large events and I say responsible. Other people are most of the time actually making them happen. I want to be clear about that. But uh you know, and I, yeah, you just always have that fear that something is going to go dramatically wrong 
And, you know, I'm thinking, and it would be terrible because 700 people would see it or whatever. And the idea of however many hundreds of millions of people they pretend to watch the Oscars. Uh, yeah, it, it did. Uh, again, it's another humanizing moment, I think. Yep. And we, you know, we try to teach students, right, to embrace failure, that you have to have failure to have success and you have to learn from it. So seeing it on a grand scale, it hopefully reinforces that. <laughs> that is yes. true. I had it happen in real time just at our summit where we accidentally listed a student as one of our award nominees as not being in attendance. And he was in attendance and called out that he was there to 300 people who were sitting at the dinner. And so there was very much that lived out moment right right, right then. Uh, and yeah, which, which could have been worse because I think the Oscars also showed a picture of someone in the in memoriam who was in fact not in memoriam. So you were just saying he wasn't there in the room. Right, that's <laughs> true. So he at was. At least you weren't saying he's not there as in. Um, like physically with us anymore. <laughs> right. Yeah. <Exactly>. yeah. Maybe <laughs> in the spiritual fear. sense, but not in the physical. Yeah, that's right. Right. Good. Well, thanks, guys, for a great episode. Just a plug once again, as always, um, subscribe to us on iTunes, rate us on iTunes. That's how we get more followers. Uh, share what you liked about the episode with us and with pe other people you know on social media. Um, always looking to spread a, a larger message and always looking for ideas. So if there's someone you think we should be interviewing, a topic you think should, we should be covering, you can email us at podcast at .org or on social media, hashtag uh, compactnationpod, and we will find your suggestions. All right. Have a great week, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. Compact Nation is produced by Naval Mahdi at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, on behalf of Campus Compact and its network of 1,100 colleges and universities across the United States. To learn more about Campus Compact, check it out online at compact.org. Hey, Habiba, how was that for an episode? <laughs>